Welcome to the Alien Wellness Think Tank podcast series. The Think Tank is an emergency medicine organization led by residents for residents to improve the culture of wellness during residency training. Take a listen to our conversations with our wellness strategists and mentors. Hi, thanks for joining us today. My name is Katie Rebelow, and I'm one of the leaders of the Wellness Think Tank. And today I'm joined by two of our stellar residents on our team, and we're here to discuss imposter syndrome. How are you guys doing today? Great. Um, hi there. I'm Vitos Corrales. I'm a second-year resident at Northwestern University in Chicago. Looking forward to discussing imposter syndrome today. Hi, I'm Deirdre Good. I'm from the Boston area, and I'm a second-year resident at the University of Chicago in emergency medicine. And I, too, am excited to talk about imposter syndrome today. Yeah, so what exactly is imposter syndrome? How did you guys like kind of learn about this? So imposter syndrome is defined as the psychological pattern or this persistent feeling of inadequacy despite your accomplishments and successful experiences that would suggest that you're indeed actually quite accomplished. There was an article in the Harvard Business Review that had recently kind of summed up that imposters suffer from this chronic feeling of self-doubt and this sense of kind of intellectual fraudulence amongst their peers that really override any feelings of success or external proof that they're actually indeed competent and excellent. The concept of this whole imposter syndrome, if you will, came from a handful of studies in the 1970s by Clance and Imes, where they sent out these interviews and surveys from college women in the 1970s. They found that there was this generalized anxiety, lack of self-confidence, depression, self-doubt, and even frustration related to their perceived inability to meet these self-imposed standards of achievement that they had set. And that kind of started to establish this concept of imposter syndrome, which has been continually built on since. And I think that it's something that not only affects women, it definitely affects men, but I know that they have a Clance scale and they also have something called the Young Imposter Scale that's also used. It's a little more brief of a survey to just kind of identify risk factors within an individual that might make them at risk for kind of developing this imposter syndrome. But what I thought was really interesting when I was researching this syndrome, if you will, is that there's actually five different kinds. I thought it was a one-size-fits-all, but it's actually not. So the five different kinds are perfectionist, superman or superwoman, the natural genius, the soloist, and the expert. And we'll kind of just dive into each one and see if you self-identify with one. So the, the perfectionist is kind of obvious. They kind of go hand in hand. These people set excessively high goals for themselves. They like to focus on how something is done and how the work is conducted and how it turns out. And they like to do things 100%, 100% of the time. They tend to experience self-doubt when they can't kind of measure up to their own standards of excellence. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes these will be the, the types of workers who are kind of accused of being micromanagers. You'll find yourself having difficulties delegating the work. You'll find that you're kind of slaving at the computer, making sure that everything's 100% perfect 100% of the time when it really doesn't need to be that way. Yeah, I don't really struggle with this type that much. I tend not to be a perfectionist. I kind of go a little bit more with the flow. But I definitely know that a lot of physicians and Specifically, when I was reading different articles about imposters in medicine, which I know we'll touch on later, surgeons tend to be this kind of imposter a lot of the time. One of the other types of imposter syndrome is the superman or superwoman, basically who try to take on 
all areas of their life at the same time and feel like they should be able to devote equal time to equal parts of their lives. They you know, they feel like they should be able to be equal physician, equal mentor, equal faculty member, equal partner, equal parent. And sometimes they feel like if they aren't able to like equally divide their time and dedicate themselves fully to all the different areas of their lives that they're failing, they don't uh, necessarily take that very well. Yeah. And I think a feature that I think is associated with this is these are the folks who feel like if they just work a little harder, then they'll be successful. It's all about effort and it's all about how you're managing your time. And I think I experience this a lot. I think emergency medicine doctors probably do because we're all about being experts in time management. So when we have come up against conflict in our life where it's our job is now feeling opposed to our other roles as spouse, daughter, friend, confidant, researcher, whatever that is, Generally, we want to feel like we're the table. We're the thing that everything else is sitting on. But once we can't control these things, it's like the leg of the table has been kicked out from under us. And so we've collapsed. We're now a failure. We're not serving anybody well. The people we're feeling the most is ourselves in that situation because we're expecting so much of us as an individual, which is just unrealistic. Yeah, I love that analogy. I feel like a lot of us kind of struggle with that for sure. One of the other types of imposters are the natural genius, which I feel like a lot of people in medicine probably struggle with. This is the person that, you know, has not really struggled in life. Like they're used to getting straight A's. They might have been class president, head of the cheerleading squad. They've always been successful. Then they finally get into medical school and they realize they're actually not on top and they might not be in the top 1%. They might not be getting straight A's and they really struggle with their ability to gain competence in terms of like ease and speed. They kind of beat themselves up over not being able to learn things maybe as fast or as easy as their peers. I definitely have struggled with this a little bit. I was always that person who got straight A's in school. It was not hard for me to get into college. And then it took me a year to get into medical school. And I felt like a failure for that entire first year, even though I know that a lot of people take a gap year and a lot of people don't get into medical school the first year. I definitely like blamed myself, like maybe I'm not smart enough or I'm not like learning this material quick enough and they don't think that I'm going to be able to make it in medical school and that's why I'm not getting in. And then I've kind of continued to struggle with this a little bit throughout training. Yeah, this is certainly prevalent in both medical school and residency. So many people come in are so high achieving just to be able to matriculate into medical school. And you know, once they're amongst peers who have all been so talented to matriculate, it, it, it becomes really apparent really quickly how much work there is and sometimes that you won't succeed at everything. Um, and a lot of times these individuals will have troubles having a mentor or finding a mentor because they've been used to dealing with things all on their own all the time. And now this is a new feeling for them and they're not used to having to reach out to others or to tap into other resources in order to find help. And sometimes, you know, their confidence in kind of this internal feeling of shame can be a real hindrance to their performance and kind of their success in medical school. Yeah, I think these are people who we probably have to be more mindful of and watch out for because they're less likely to ask for help because they think they would see asking for help as, see, I was right all along. I don't know anything. And so they're not going to ask 
when they feel like there's a knowledge gap. I think it's also like part of it is changing your internal dialogue, but also being mindful of other people who feel that way, right? And what are the things you want to look for so that you can help other people kind of break that mental cycle of their own demon talking to them? Yeah. So another type of imposter syndrome that exists that I think is also pretty prevalent in medicine is the soloist, especially in emergency medicine, because as residents, we're given so much autonomy over our training. These are the people who want to be like 100% independent. They like to accomplish things on their own. They like to make their own mistakes and kind of learn things on their own time period. And if they feel like they aren't doing it to their own standards, they feel like a failure. And I think, I believe also they're kind of less likely to ask for help I, I associate this with like an autodidact, someone who teaches themselves a lot of things. And so if they're just not accustomed to asking other somebody else to teach them something, because they are such a good self-teacher. So if they can't teach themselves, it means it's unlearnable to them, right? It's, I'm too stupid to understand this, even if it's something that is complicated, something that requires experience to know about, that you just simply lack, right? And that's okay. That's the point of training. Yeah, absolutely. And Something that's actually really interesting is coming from the faculty perspective, when we are looking for candidates to join residency, specifically when we have medical students rotating, one of the things we look for is, is this person teachable? Can I you know, teach them this procedure or do they feel like they know it all or do they feel like they can't accept teaching because they want to go read on their own or learn it on their own? So that's kind of a big part of something that we look for when we're recruiting candidates. The last type of imposter is the expert, which is like the knowledge version of the perfectionist. And this is you're kind of expected to know everything. And if you have even like a minor deficit in your knowledge or in your experience and you kind of feel like a failure, I definitely fall into this category. I feel like when I first joined residency, I felt like everybody else around me was way smarter. They had more of a knowledge foundation than I did. And wherever I had a knowledge gap or an experience gap, I was kind of failing in comparison and I wasn't learning things as fast as I should. This is definitely something I've struggled with, which is silly because we're never going to know everything. <laughs> Even I'm still learning today as a faculty member. I too sometimes struggle with this. And I think medicine in general, just because there's always more to learn in medicine and there's always more that we can be doing. And I think sometimes the altruistic motives of medicine of taking care of the patient makes us feel less inclined to let that go and constantly wanting to learn more, become more of the expert in order to help our patients. And sometimes it can be kind of a vicious circle. I think I've worked for a lot of years to combat against this. I think of this as like the don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So whenever I find myself falling into this downward cycle of thinking, I'm like, oh, I'll just study more because knowing more makes me better somehow. I'm a better doctor if I just know more than everybody else. But that's not really true. You know, a better doctor is someone who can apply what they know, even if they don't know everything. And that's okay. And the, I think some of the best doctors or the clinicians, let's expand this, are the people who know what they don't know. And so they're those who reach out to others who have expertise. So I think this idea, I, I've seen this, also, you know, I used to work in business and you see this a lot too, where people think, oh, if you're the manager, then you know how to do everybody's job on the team. That's not true. In the emergency department, the head of the, the head of the department doesn't know how to do all the functions of the department. So, and that shouldn't be the expectation. So I think it's about knowing what is needed and then how to plug in those holes. And if you're the person to plug in that gap, great, but it's not always going to be you. 
and just burning yourself out by studying everything and then focusing on the, oh, I got a 98 on the test instead of 100 is not really helping you. It's it's saying like, how can I apply the 98% of the things that I knew to really give excellent patient care? Yeah, it's more about like reading to increase your knowledge foundation, but then using your experience to really become a good clinician. I know that when I was in my pediatric emergency fellowship at Harbor UCLA, it's a very evidence-based program. And a lot of the residents would quote different studies and research and literature to kind of back up their management plans. And at the end of the day, that's great. It's increasing their knowledge foundation, but there really isn't a comparison for your clinical gestalt and your experience when it comes to like really sick patients. So, and that's just going to come with time, but that's something that it took me many years to learn. Yeah. And then I, sorry, I just want to make like another point, a interesting thing that I learned at a recent conference was like evidence-based medicine is great, but we have to recognize that there's actually gaps in the evidence that we have because we really only study very specific populations in research studies. So it's not like widely applicable. So we have to like be careful of stepping into that evidence-based medicine trap because it might not apply to the population that you're treating. Yeah, absolutely. So just wanted to put that little thing in there for more diversity in medical research. I love it. Thanks for the nugget. <laughs> I feel like a lot of these apply to all areas of medicine and possibly some more than others. I don't know if maybe there, th this probably hasn't been researched, but maybe there's more like soloists in emergency medicine and more perfectionists in surgery. Um, but that would be kind of an interesting study. Yeah. And I just want to emphasize that people can be a mix of all of these. These are really kind of classifications of kind of different presentations of the same syndrome, if you will, this imposter syndrome. So I know that I don't necessarily fit into one box exactly, but I can see different parts of me that fit each one of these. I think that's a great point. Thanks for bringing that up. So can we talk a little bit about the research? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. So we keep saying imposter syndrome as if this is in the DSM-5. Is that even the number we're on now? Whatever we're on. Um, <laughs> is it even in the DSM-5? That would be so interesting. if it was. I don't know. We didn't, our research did not extend that far. Yeah. <laughs> I think, so it's interesting. I was reading some articles that were saying that syndrome is a bit of a misnomer because that applies like, this is really like a constellation of things that people experience. And because it is so prevalent across the board in any industry, it, it this crosses all demographics, that it really should be called the imposter experience. Because this is so it's so universal that this doesn't just affect certain groups of people, it affects everyone at certain points in their life, whether as a student working as a parent, just kind of living your day-to-day -day life, that everybody kind of experiences this. And I thought that was an interesting concept to bring forward because there's so much material out there. If you just Google this, you could just spend hours reading about it. And it's like a syndrome, we're over-clinicalizing and maybe pathologizing something that is just extremely common. Yeah. And I actually really like the word experience because I feel like that kind of encompasses that it it's not happening 100% of the time. Like sometimes you're feeling a little bit like an imposter, maybe when it comes to like procedures or differential diagnosis, but it's not something that's like permeating every aspect of your life all the time, whereas a syndrome kind of is. So I kind of like that differentiation. I also kind of think it's interesting to kind of build on the experience portion of it that like experience versus syndrome in that syndrome is like starts at a specific point, whereas 
experience can kind of be built upon. So based on our research, a lot of times medical students are the ones who start experiencing the imposterism and the different qualities that kind of contribute to these feelings of self-doubt. And then it kind of builds in residency and then it builds in your attending hood. And when you become faculty somewhere or when you're teaching somebody else and it changes along the way, you might feel like a fraud in some areas, but then once you gain confidence in that area, you might, as you move into a new role, say like a higher level of residency or fellowship or faculty position, your experience changes and you feel kind of like a fraud in different areas, which is definitely what I've experienced. You know, I I used to feel really a lot of self-doubt in some areas that I now feel pretty confident in, but, you know, now moving into like a faculty position, I'm starting to doubt, am I doing a good job teaching on shift, you know? which is something I never would have experienced as a resident. So that's why I like the experience a little bit better than syndrome. Absolutely. And I think it also underlines the importance of like why we need to talk about it, especially in medicine, like so many other high achieving fields, there's constantly this next step or this next level where we are constantly still being a learner. We're constantly still trying to meet this next bar or goal. And there's always these new things or achievements that need to be had. And it makes us very liable to kind of have this imposter experience throughout our careers. Yeah as early as medical students and to as late as like attending. Yeah. What do you think specifically makes medical professionals a little bit more susceptible to experiencing these qualities of self-doubt? So I would, I think part of it is because of the work that we do is like very high stakes and it's also very much in the spotlight. So the things that we're doing are very public and they're very visible to other clinicians and our patients, mostly our patients. So I think when you feel like you're under both the spotlight and the microscope all the time, that's going to breed this feeling of, am I the appropriate person to be here? Should I really be the star of this production or is this really, am I just kind of out of my league here? So I think that's why medicine is kind of ripe with this and then regrettably, we have this kind of structural component to how we're trained. And then we have to do a better job incorporating feedback throughout the training and beyond process, both giving and receiving. So I was reading a study that was talking to residents and attendings and how the imposter experience has kind of inhibited people's career trajectories. And a lot of it kind of boiled down to how much feedback people were getting throughout. So essentially, we do a great job of targeting people who need remediation. We have tangible, measurable things that we can go to for them to say, you know, you're not performing well on these in-service exams or the boards or whatever. Let's remediate. We have a structure in place to do that. And then we're very good at giving props and shout outs to our very high performers. But we don't really do a lot for the folks in the middle. We don't have a regular enough feedback cycle where we're kind of giving people the the highs and the lows of this is the things that you do really well. And so let's play to some of your strengths with the other things that you could be doing. And here, here's your backhand. Here's your weaker stroke. Here are things that we can do to help with that. So I think the problem is we're not really doing that as well, particularly for the folks in the middle. And they're the ones who I think are kind of secretly suffering from the imposter experience, but not really getting any airtime with their sponsors, mentors, or anybody to help kind of combat those feelings. So then they're just left in this vacuum where they're listening to their own demon who's telling them all the ways that they suck. And we can do a better job there. 
That's such a great point. And I feel like the majority of residents probably fall into that middle category of they're not necessarily a top performer, but they don't require remediation. And they're kind of just coasting exactly where they should be. And as faculty members, you know, sometimes we just let them coast, which is the wrong thing to do. Everybody can always improve in some area of their life. And we really should be better at making those areas known as well as, you know, telling them where they are succeeding. And part of that comes from really not learning how to give or receive feedback which is another great idea for a podcast in the future. (laughs) I have a lot of feelings about feedback, so I'm happy to participate with that. Yeah. Kind of segueing into the feedback portion, I think that it's really interesting how gender does seem to play a role in this imposter experience. Now, obviously, it was first described in women by women for many different reasons. But time and again, I've read many articles that basically say that it tends to be more prevalent in women because women tend to project the cause of their success to an external source rather than an internal quality, whereas men tend to attribute their success to something that's inherently awesome in themselves, which I just think is fascinating. I, When I first started fellowship, I was reading Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg, who's amazing. And if you haven't read the book, then you should go buy it right now on Amazon. And if you want the Audible version, she actually reads the book herself and she's a very good speaker. But she talks about how she experienced this when she went from being the VP of Google of their global sales and transitioned into being COO of Facebook and how she always was attributing her own success of getting promoted to this new role at Facebook of other people's success, not necessarily her own, and how it took many years of her developing a relationship with Mark Zuckerberg to really realize that it was actually her own internal success that was driving her career trajectory. And I just thought it was so interesting because you think of somebody like her who's like wildly successful and has done all these great things and has an amazing career and she really talks a lot about family. You never expect somebody like her to be like, yeah, I really suffered with the imposter experience. So... I think it's really interesting how gender kind of plays a role with that. Because do you have any thoughts on that? As a man? No. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, just playing. No, I mean, I think it makes sense. Some of this, the reading that I was doing also emphasized too that I think that certain people who come from underrepresented or minority backgrounds struggle with this as well, and understandably so. And I think it's important that we kind of identify that no one's really immune to this imposter experience. I think that certainly it might be more prevalent in those underrepresented populations, including women, minorities, and students and residents and doctors and that are underrepresented in medicine. I also think there's like a combination synergistic effect. So if you are part of multiple minority groups simultaneously, I think you're more likely to suffer the ill effects of the imposter experience. But I I think the evidence will show that men and women experience this across all demographics. So the imposterism is, is not gendered inherently, but the experience of it and even the vocalization that it's happening is different among different demographic groups, whether it be men versus women or different racial and ethnic groups, people who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. So I think that's kind of important to be mindful of that just because someone isn't communicating that they're having these issues doesn't mean that they're not. That's absolutely correct. And I don't think you could have said it better. And we'll talk more about kind of discussing and talking about imposter experiences as part of the way to combat this. And I think that that inability sometimes to express that is a huge difference in terms of how people experience this imposter syndrome. 
What do you guys see as some kind of the negative effects of kind of experiencing this within your clinical training? How is it impairing your ability to proceed through residency training? Yeah, so uh, I think there's a lot of negative effects of imposter syndrome, um, which I'm sure we can all relate to at some point throughout our medical training. First, I think, and most importantly, and kind of something that's important for residents to hear, and a good reason to do this podcast is that refusing to acknowledge our own successes and our own expertise in our own fields really opens the door to others ignoring it too. If you treat your success like it's no big deal, and if you treat your expertise like it's no big deal, others will too, because that's what you're portraying. That's what you're telling them with your body language and what you say on a day-to-day basis. And it kind of is this vicious cycle where not only are you portraying that, but then it's it's also limiting our courage to go after new opportunities and try new things um, and put ourselves out there to learn more and achieve you know the goals that we've set for ourselves. Additionally, I think that it, this imposter experience makes it sometimes really difficult to receive feedback, which we kind of talked about the importance of feedback in why we're so susceptible to it to begin with. And that in its own right, maybe makes us more unable to improve clinically. And one thing that I know that I've really personally struggled with when it comes to imposter syndrome is that it can be really debilitating. This vicious cycle kind of causes this worse stress, this worse anxiety, more self-doubt. Sometimes you can even see it cause depression in either yourself or your peers. There's these complex neural networks that kind of propagate these negative attitudes and these negative statements that you have towards your own success and your own goals and your own achievements that kind of further propagate these catecholamine surges and kind of propagate the stress, this anxiety and depression. And it can be really debilitating. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like kind of building on that, once you kind of stress yourself out and kind of get to get these depressive symptoms in regards to your training, you kind of develop a lack of empathy towards your patients. And it can really contribute to your compassion fatigue. I know that a lot of times when residents struggle with like their, say their fund of knowledge, and they feel like they're not, you know, seeing enough really sick patients, they get really frustrated with seeing the common cough, cold patients in the ER, and they start developing lack of empathy towards them and get frustrated when they have to see them and they can't see the sicker patients because they feel like they're not able to build on their knowledge and experience with the sicker patients, which is kind of just, you know, contributing to their imposter experience. Absolutely. And then I think all these things eventually down the road lead to worsening job satisfaction and increasing burnout, which ultimately is the overarching goal of these wellness podcasts and the the LA EM Wellness Think Tank is we experience already a lot of job dissatisfaction and burnout in our specialty. Things that we talk about negatively impact our careers. We feel these pressures to overproduce and it's going to lead out to burnout because we're prioritizing career success over time with family and children. And we spend so much time trying to improve these self-impressions of deficiency that that's become the detriment to our personal health, our emotional health, and to our personal lives and our family lives. I also just wanted to add that, you know, even outside of the realm of medicine, even though that's kind of where we all live, I think I've seen the imposter experience make people self-limit. I've had numerous conversations with colleagues, friends who like won't apply for something or won't try to do something because they're already decided that they won't be good at it. They won't get it. They won't, you know what I mean? They won't kind of be able to grasp that achievement. And so I, I always try to encourage them. I was like, it's like the lottery, right? You got to be in it to win it. So don't 
already eliminate yourself from the running because of your perception of how you look on paper or what you can offer. The fact that you're interested is reason enough to do it. And the reason why application processes or trying to sit on a board or something like that, the reason that that's so laborious is because you're trying to weed out the people who don't care about it that much. If you care about it, then you're going to be an excellent addition to the team because you have a very mission-driven reason for being there. So try to quiet that inner demon in your head that's telling you you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not good-looking enough, whatever it is, because you are those things. And it's okay to want it. That's that's a good enough reason to do it because you want to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And just going back to my girl crush, Sheryl Sandberg, and the whole title of her book, Lean In, basically is talking about leaning into your career despite all of those fears. She talks about in her second chapter about like sitting at the table and she talks about how when she was working at Google, she had like all of these young female interns who would come in and they would, there was a huge conference table with lots of empty seats. And a lot of the interns, men and women were sitting on the outside chairs and how she had to like invite them to come and sit at the table. And she just talks about this idea that people don't think they're good enough to actually sit at the table and contribute to the conversation and just believing that you are good enough to contribute and you've been asked to be there and you've been given this position and this residency spot for a reason and just leaning into it and being like, okay, somebody believes in me. Let's do this. Yeah. And I just want to just put in another plug for like a different author. Uh, His name is Benjamin Zander. He wrote a book called uh, The Art of Possibility and he's a speaker and he's also a conductor for an orchestra in Boston. And he has this wonderful book that I encourage everybody to read, but he, what he did with his students every year was at the beginning of the term, he had them write themselves a letter for, or write him a letter rather about why they're going to get an A. And it, he calls the chapter, giving yourself an A. What it becomes is like this statement of intention of all the things that you're going to do to become a better violinist, violist, cellist, whatever. And I think that that's something that you can adapt into your life. It's like, give yourself the A so that you can just focus on doing the thing that you want to do, as opposed to all of the internal performance evaluation associated with what it is that you want to do. Just take it off the table, give yourself the A, and then focus on what it is that you want to do. Don't worry about how good it is or how good it sounds. Just kind of do the work and see how far you can get and how close to your goal you can get. Uh, I'm totally going to read that. I'm such a bookworm. We've talked all about this. So how do we make the imposter experience go away? So one strategy to combat the imposter experience is to weaponize it and make it a a tool for good, right? So use it as a way to encourage yourself, be your self-coach rather than your your self-critic. What are the areas that you feel insecure about? And then talk to your mentor or sponsor about that, right? Say like, ah, this is what makes me feel uncomfortable. What are things that you think I could be doing to shore that up a little? I feel stupid at work. How do I fix that? I feel like I don't know how to do this procedure. How do I feel more confident about that? Yeah. And I think actually discussing it with um, either co-residents or mentors is actually a great way to figure this out because it helps you kind of separate your facts from your feelings. Okay. I don't feel confident with this procedure. Well, actually you are quite confident. Let's go through it. And then once you go through it, you realize, oh, I actually do know how to do this. And just because you feel like a certain way doesn't necessarily make it true seeking some external validation might actually help with that particular issue. 
Another good strategy, I think, for combating imposter syndrome is celebrating your wins. Remind yourself of your accomplishments, accept positive feedback, welcome it, and agree with it. You're a physician now. You know, you've been accepted to residency. Focus on your strengths instead of your perceived weaknesses. And just remembering, too, that like everyone at some point probably like experiences imposter syndrome and that you don't always have to feel so isolated and that actually talking about it might actually help you realize that other people are feeling this way so you don't feel so isolated. They can share their own experiences and share their own strategies with how they kind of deal with it also. Absolutely. I think that talking about it is so important. There's this pluralistic ignorance that helps propagate this imposter syndrome because we assume that nobody else is struggling with this. We only know how our mind works and kind of how we feel, but on the outside, we don't see how anybody else feels. We should know because we are doctors that everybody's minds work somewhat the same way as ours do. But for some reason, it's difficult to convince of that. And one way to kind of bring that out into the open is to talk about it and to share those experiences and everybody struggles with it. Yeah. And this kind of permeates all levels of training. This isn't just medical students or residents. This also applies to me as a faculty member. I'm sure it applies to chairmen and obviously people outside of the medical field. But it's something that's like a lifelong process because we're constantly learning as a physician. You're always going to learn something on every case, on every shift that you have. And just recognizing that you're constantly learning and you're not ever going to know everything will help you realize you're not expected to know everything all the time. I think something that has been really helpful to me, our residency program is something called your failure friend. And so you identify that person who you can just call or talk to whenever you need to, when you feel like you're just kind of like screwing this whole thing up and you just don't know, and you're just kind of bereft and, you know, this terrible thing happened or, you know, you got in a fight with somebody at work or whatever. And I find that we are such great cheerleaders for other people. And we are such disastrously terrible cheerleaders for ourselves. So maybe that is, I think, a good strategy, which is do the thing that's easier for you, which is to be encouraging for somebody else, but then have this kind of symbiotic relationship with them where they provide that for you and remind you of all the reasons why you're good at what you do and and why they respect you as their colleague and kind of puff you up a little bit. And then also listen to your pump up jam before you go to work because that will definitely help. Yeah, absolutely. I always feel like confidence is your best accessory and it goes with everything and it will always make your day better. So yeah, I really like that point. I find that just because we feel a certain way doesn't make it true. There's a lot of CBT strategies out there that kind of help us with that. At the end of the day, you know, you're in the sciences. Uh, You need to be objective about these things sometimes, not just subjective. If the data doesn't support that you're a failure or that you're insufficient, then why should you feel that way? And why are you feeling that way? And is that true? And it usually isn't. And then I think at the end of the day, if like that heavy lifting is just too much for you, then like you can always talk to like a professional, right? This is why therapists are very helpful and counselors because they help you break that. I don't, it's not even an inner dialogue. It's more of an inner diatribe, right? Because it's a part of you that is just berating you about the thing that you're most insecure about. And because it's you doing the talking, you know exactly how to hit at your own worst pain points. So sometimes you need a professional who helps you take off the boxing gloves with yourself. And I think at the end of the day, Something that one of my mentors taught me in residency that I have continued to take with me into my attending hood is fake it till you make it. (laughs) As long as you're not endangering anybody and you're being clinically safe, courage 
essentially comes from taking risks. And sometimes you need to take those risks and get feedback that what you are doing is correct and see the reward of the risk that you're taking and then change your behavior. And then once you build your confidence, your self-doubt will kind of start to dwindle away. Any other final thoughts? No, that's great. So we talked about a lot today. First, we talked about what imposter syndrome is, or um, as we like to call it, the imposter experience. We talked about how prevalent it was throughout the medical field, as well as some of the pros and cons of experiencing this imposter experience. We also talked about the five different types of imposter syndrome that we can experience, and hopefully that helps us identify with this experience that likely we've all gone through. And we discussed some ways to kind of combat that. Hopefully, you've all gleaned some pearls to take home with you and help you become the best and most well physician that you can be. Yeah, thanks for joining us today on the Wellness Think Tank podcast and tune in to our next series. And that wraps up a great episode from the Wellness Think Tank. Special thanks to our exclusive sponsors, U.S. Acute Care Solutions. You can reach us also on Twitter at WellnessTT. Until next time, remember that residency training should be about thriving and not just surviving.